We're in Mark chapter 8. But I want to read this differently tonight. We're not going to put the words on the screen. At the minute, I don't want you to look it up. I want you to resist the urge to do that. You can look it up after I finish reading it. I want you to close your eyes for a second. I want you to imagine standing in a crowd. Other people are there, friends are there, maybe some of your family's there as well. But somebody starts to talk loudly. Everyone turns to listen and you realize that it's Jesus. Don't come out of that place, but instead listen now for the word of God. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? Imagine hearing his voice saying that. They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? You hear Jesus' voice say, who do you say I am? Peter's there, and Peter answers, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Imagine being there and hearing Jesus say that for the first time. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But then Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. He actually rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What was the emotion in his voice when he said that? As you picture it. Then Jesus called called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul. Amen. Johnny. In the 1980s and 90s, there were a bunch of British and American companies who had been selling stuff in 
um, Britain and America for a long time, but they were beginning to access new markets in Asia, in South America, in Europe. Uh, and the problem was that they had these marketing slogans they'd been using for decades, but all of a sudden they needed a translation into a different culture. Some of those translations didn't go very well. KFC had been selling finger-licking good chicken for a long time, but in 1980s China, the translation in Mandarin came out, eat your fingers off. Coors Beer were selling beer with this very American kind of Californian, turn it loose, turn it loose, man. Uh, and when they put that into Spanish, in Mexico, that came out as suffer from awful diarrhea. Braniff Airlines, where are they from? Who knows? Maybe Canada. They, they were telling people, fly in leather, which I think was meant to connote a luxurious experience. And again, in the Mexican Spanish, it came out, fly while naked. Pepsi, we're telling people, Pepsi brings you back to life. Uh, in Chinese, that came out, Pepsi will bring your ancestors back from the grave. It's not that refreshing. <laughs> The Vauxhall Corsa, I don't know if anybody drives a Vauxhall Corsa in the room. Um, Sarah, do you drive a Vauxhall Corsa? Right, well, the Vauxhall Corsa was originally called the Vauxhall Nova. Nova in Spanish? You teach Spanish, don't you? You don't. Naomi, Nova in Spanish? Huh? Nova. Doesn't go. The Vauxhall doesn't go, right? And then the jolly green giant. Um, so he, what, where's he? He's on the sweet corn, isn't he? The jolly green giant. So the Arabic translation of the jolly green giant came out as intimidating green ogre. <laughs> A bit threatening maybe for sweet corn. And then Schweppes tonic water were selling uh, their product in Italy for three years almost with a typo that came out as Schweppes toilet water. So translation problems in the 1980s and 90s for all these companies were a common thread. The other common thread for all of these companies is that they were selling people a vision of the good life. Now, you have been sold on countless occasions a vision of the good life. In fact, you've been sold today a vision of the good life somewhere. And the funny thing is that none of these uh, companies here selling a vision of the good life ever say that explicitly. It's never in text, it's never really explained or, or articulated, but it's all there in the images. And you see these pictures attached to products with people who seem to be brimming with this inner contentment and peace and happiness. They just seem to have made it in life. And the next time you see that, uh, I want you to point to it on a billboard or on YouTube or wherever else and say, that's a vision of the good life. And they won't tell you directly that's what they're selling, but that's the underlying message. Just buy this, get that, invest in whatever, and you too can be filled from the inside out with this incredible contentment and peace and fulfillment. And the whole system works by just keeping that uh, kind of good life that they're selling tantalizingly out of reach. C.S. Lewis said, human history is the long, terrible story of man searching for something other than God that will make him happy. Jesus of Nazareth, for my mind, was the most compelling person who ever lived. And he talked a lot about the good life, a kind of deep, inner fulfillment, 
contentment and abundant life that the whole world is obsessed with and chasing after desperately with all that they have and don't often know that that's what they're chasing after or even hear it articulated. And Jesus of Nazareth claimed to have the secret of how to get it. He said it works like a seed. A seed goes in the ground and you bury it. I had to look this up on Google. I'm, I'm no horticulturalist, right? But you put a seed in the ground and you bury it. A little bit like death. But then, out of death in the ground, comes this beautiful new life. First death, and then new life. And Jesus had a favorite saying about it. In fact, of all the different sayings that are recorded in the Gospels and that were collected together and built into this narrative, he had one particular saying that was the most popular, perhaps his favorite, and it's here in Mark chapter 8. He said, whoever loses their life for me, whoever lays down their life, whoever surrenders, whoever enters into this kind of death will actually find life. Let me pray for a moment. Father, I, I want to pray tonight that we would, um, that, you would, that you would minister to our hearts and to our minds by your word and by your Holy Spirit and that we would drive home or walk home later um, with a deeper knowledge of Jesus and actually just being able to see him more clearly. I pray you would clear our vision to see him uh, and with um, just a greater affection for him as well and a, and a desire to follow him more closely. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. We've been in a, a series in Mark's gospel and we've come through seven chapters. We've arrived tonight in Mark chapter eight. There's some other stuff that happens in Mark chapter eight that Gareth didn't read for us, but we've actually done a fair bit of teaching on the inauguration of the kingdom of God, some of the miracles of Jesus, some of the instances of healing, deliverance as well. And I just want to draw your attention tonight to a little passage really from verse 27 onwards. And you have permission now, by the way, if you want to look it up, you can do that. You can sit and um, have that in front of you. But We've been in this series, and Mark 1 through 7, even into chapter 8, what you're seeing is the inauguration of the kingdom of God. And then here in Mark chapter 8 tonight, we have what you might call the turn. The turn happens in every gospel account, all four of them. The guys recording this clearly felt that the turn was a really significant moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. I don't really know how else to put this, but for seven chapters of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus does the magic tricks. He bursts onto the scene, he feeds people, he loves people, he heals people, he teaches these extraordinary things. On one occasion, he takes a bottle of Evian and he turns it into a bottle of Chateau Neuf du Pape. Jesus does the magic tricks. And then there comes this moment when Peter speaks it out loud and says, you are God's Messiah. And it all comes to like a crescendo and a climax. And Jesus then, the unpredictable Jesus, the exciting Jesus, the Jesus who is literally the best thing that Galilee has seen since unleavened bread, he deliberately poops his own party. And in verse 31, it says, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He began 
to teach them. So he introduces something that I don't think they saw coming. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected, and he must be killed. That's the turn. It's especially pronounced, I think, in Mark's gospel, but you see it in in the other gospel accounts as well. And in fact, in the NIV, the, the little kind of subtitle that's given to this moment is the way of the cross. And Theologians have looked at the Gospel of Mark and they've said it's really a drama in two movements. You could almost take an intermission when you come to the turn. And the two movements are relatively straightforward. There's the way of the king for seven and a half chapters, the inauguration of the kingdom of God, and then the turn followed by the way of the cross. And that's the little subtitle that the translators of the NIV have given it the way of the cross. But I mean, you see it in Luke's gospel as well, in Luke chapter nine, and Luke says that none of the disciples really understood what on earth Jesus was talking about. You see it in John's gospel. John actually says that from that moment on, Jesus lost hundreds, if not thousands of followers because they just couldn't understand or buy into what he was beginning to teach them. You see, it wasn't on the messianic job description, this whole suffer many things and be killed stuff that he's talking about. It's a mystery that God has kept hidden because what did it tell you? For beautiful new life to happen, first of all, there had to be death. And if that's not bad enough, Jesus then begins to explain to them that his death is not only an event, but it's a pattern in which they will have to follow. Say it very quietly in Protestant Ulster but the kind of abundant life that people are searching for and looking for and longing for begins with surrender, begins with laying down life, it begins with a kind of death, that's the turn. And when the turn happens, you notice that there are fans and there are followers. And Mark makes that distinction really clearly. He says there's a crowd and there are disciples. There are fans and there are followers. And I think you see that often in life as well. In the mid-1990s, Manchester United had hundreds of fans, right? Playgrounds, full of fans, little Ryan Giggs pencil cases everywhere, little David Beckham school bags everywhere, okay, they were insufferable. Where are they now? You hear from them twice a season, which is on average the number of times Liverpool don't win, right? Because fans are easy to come by, but following is a whole different equation. Following is a different level of cost and commitment and reward. Jesus has thousands of fans, and a few followers. He's got these vast droves listening to him and a handful of disciples. He's speaking to a huge assembly with just a a small collection of apprentices. And at the turn, Jesus almost says to them in this moment, "What, what do you want? I can't force you to follow me. I can't force you to be my disciple, but I want you, I'm inviting you. and it's a very low bar of invitation. I notice here, um, you know, he, said, he speaks to the crowd and he says, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever, the invitation is a wide open invitation. It's a very low bar, but it's quite a high bar of challenge then that comes after. It's almost like it's really, really soft and invitational on the outside and then hard as a nut on the inside. And I kind of was thinking about this and I thought, I wonder, you know, for how long have we been a church that often has felt quite hard on the outside with our, um, our, our jargon and our, our sort of strange dress codes and our 
time warp that goes on sometimes, and even sometimes a judgmental attitude. We're quite hard on the outside, and then in, in the inside, often a bit soft, where you can kind of drift for decades and decades and never really grow any closer to Jesus or grow to be more like Jesus. And I think we're supposed to reflect what he was like, which was really soft on the outside, hugely invitational with a low bar, but on the inside, really hard and full of challenge and discipline. And Jesus says, what do you want? Speaking to this crowd and then a few disciples. I was at Summer Madness, I don't know when, maybe 10 or 12 or 14 years ago, and I think Helen Rosevere was there. And she delivered this kind of spellbinding talk. She spoke really, really softly, and you had to listen in very carefully. And I was just on the edge of my seat the whole time. And she came to the end of her talk, and she said, look, it's, it's like this. God has no favorites. Jesus has no favorites. But he does have intimates. I remember at 17 years old, just in that moment thinking that I wanted nothing more for the rest of my life than to be one of those intimates with Jesus that she was talking about. And I knew that in everything else she had said, she'd kind of laid out and illustrated the cost to that. But when the question was asked, what do you want, Johnny? I had this profound sense that what I really, really wanted more than anything else was to be one of those intimates. You'll never be one of his favorites. He doesn't have any. But I think the invitation is there to any of us to be one of his intimates, to follow him closely, to be a disciple of Jesus. And then he says, if you want to be my disciple, it involves two things. Okay, the first thing is, he says, anyone who wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. What does that actually mean, to deny yourself? Well, the word deny there means to kind of dissociate from. Have you ever had a moment in your family where you've threatened to disown someone? You know, I feel like growing up, the threat of disowning was sort of hanging permanently over my head. Um, I feel like it was kind of maybe twice or three times a week, uh, a fairly common thing that somebody would threaten to disown somebody else. Have you ever been at a wedding and seen a family member dancing and thought, I would really like to disown that person and pretend that I've never seen them before? Um, I was trying to think, has this ever happened to me? You know, have I ever looked around at one of my own family members and thought, I'd love to disown that person? And I was drawing a blank. And then I'm driving down to church tonight, and it suddenly hits me that has happened to me. I was at Naomi's graduation at Durham University. It's quite a well-to-do affair, actually. There's a bit of pomp and circumstance. And, you know, strawberries and cream and all this kind of fuss. And at Naomi's graduation, Gary Steenson, who's maybe not known, this is my father-in-law, not terribly well known for flamboyance and um, taking extraordinary risks. Gary's, I don't know, has he had a glass or two of Pims? He might have. But there comes a point where a photo booth comes out and some of the graduates are having their pictures taken with their family and there are all these different props in the photo booth. I mean, this, this is the most un-Gary Steenson thing that has ever happened. And in that moment, Gary says, come on, we'll do the photo booth. And I'm like, okay, let's do the photo booth. Next thing you know, Gary has pulled out an inflatable jester's hat, and he's wearing the inflatable jester's hat. Then he pulls out a pair of inflatable thick-rimmed sunglasses, and he's wearing these thick-rimmed sunglasses. And then for the pièce de résistance, he pulls out an inflatable saxophone and starts to play this inflatable saxophone. So we're all humoring Gary, and this is all a bit of fun, and we get our picture taken with Naomi, who's, who's graduated, and we think, Nothing more really of it. 
until a year later, when Durham University is preparing for another class of graduates and a bit of pomp and circumstance again. And on the homepage of the Durham University website, there's an invitation to graduation with a full-page spread of Gary Steenson wearing a jester's hat playing an inflatable saxophone. And actually, if you find the date of graduation every year and look up the Durham University homepage, I'm nearly sure they're still using a picture of Gary Steenson playing an inflatable saxophone. That is the one time in my living memory when I thought I would really like to disown that person and pretend that I'd never seen them before in my life. But that's somebody else. That's disowning or dissociating from somebody else. What does it mean to deny yourself? To dissociate from yourself? Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself. I think, first of all, it means you have to reframe the story of your life as it plays in your own head. You see, I carry a device in my pocket which presents to me a carefully curated world. Uh, and in this carefully curated world, there is a constantly reinforced message that I am at the center of the universe and I am the hero of the story, the narrative that plays out in my mind. And somehow Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, it's not that Jesus becomes part of your story. It's actually that, that that narrative in your mind has to die and you now buy into a story that is bigger and that is greater than yourself. You become part of his story. I think this is most notable when you become a Christian. You reorient your whole life, your whole trajectory in life around a person and around somebody else. I locate myself in his story. Do you know what feels like costly and it feels like a really big deal to do something like that, but it's actually the most liberating thing you could ever do because the weight of being the hero of your own story and narrative, the weight of having the universe revolve around you is completely exhausting. And even as a Christian, I know many times in my life I slip back into framing my life and my story in those terms and feeling like the universe revolves around me and it's not long before I'm totally exhausted. Jesus says you have to somehow dissociate yourself from that. I think it also means that your desires are no longer the pattern for your life. You see, our zeitgeist says be yourself. Be yourself is the overwhelming message that you're gonna get from the culture around you. Express yourself, take what you want, you do you. You are so beautiful and brave and you are beautiful and brave. But Paul says in Ephesians that we are beautiful and brave but our flesh has also been corrupted. To put it in more simple terms, guys, there's a version of me that I don't want to be. And there's a version of you that you don't want to be. And Jesus' teaching and pattern for how to live sometimes is at war with my desire and what I want now. I think to deny yourself when it comes to your desires means that you come to a crossroads 10, 20, maybe 100 times a day and you're faced with a choice. The choice between what you want now and what you want most. And what you want most is to be one of Jesus' intimates, to follow him closely, to love him more, to experience the kind of transformed life and the freedom that he has for you. That's what you want most. But right now, there's something you want now, whether that's financially or 
emotionally or sexually or practically or materially, whatever. There's something you want now that is at war with what you want most. Everybody wants a piece of the good life. Everybody wants to know abundant spiritual life, contentment, fulfillment. And this is Jesus' extraordinary, counterintuitive invitation. Deny yourself and recognize that you're not at the center of the universe and let the weight of that go. Practice by the power of the Holy Spirit, choosing what you want most over what you want now. Live in sacrifice and service and find that it releases all kinds of surprising joy and mischief because it it can feel like cost, it can feel like surrender, it can feel like dying. But Jesus says, would you believe whoever loses their life, whoever lays it down, whoever surrenders it, whoever moves in service and sacrifice actually finds life and life in all its fullness. That was the invitation, come and be my disciple. To the best of my knowledge, the offer still stands. Let me pray. Bring the band back, actually, wherever those guys are. Come on ahead, guys. Um, Let me pray. Father, I've um, finished what I've prepared to say, and I just want to ask now that you would come by your Holy Spirit and allow your word to us Allow your word to me tonight to just begin to rest. Father, I'm aware like some of the stuff that Jesus taught was difficult. And it's no wonder, it's no wonder he lost a lot of people along the way who just didn't want to buy in or didn't really understand what he was saying. But I think for some of us, Lord, um, for, for many of us in the room tonight, we do want to be among your intimates. We want to be among your disciples. We want to follow you closely. That's, you've given us a new heart for that. Lord, will you give us fresh strength and energy and grace Why don't we stand to worship? Um, let's stand now together and uh, let's just take like a few minutes just to wait on the Holy Spirit. I've just a sense over the past number of weeks in church, actually maybe six or eight weeks that God's kind of breaking through a little bit in these spaces and starting to do some stuff that is really good. Um, so let's just take a few minutes to wait on his manifest presence among us. Some of you may begin to recognize the Holy Spirit resting on you and you might become aware of it. Some of you, um, some of you won't and that's okay because the Holy Spirit is sovereign and he, he does whatever he wants and it doesn't mean he's not with you or he's not in you, he's not there. It just, it just means that um, you can relax in that and just wait on him. You don't have to force anything you can let your shoulders drop Um, you don't have to do God a favor by desperately searching for what he's trying to do let's just wait on him for a few minutes and and see what he's doing in the room